Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to Episode 12, Tim Brock and Winning Hearts and Clearing Barriers. Get ready to hear one of the best stories of leadership that I've heard in a long time. With that, let's get started. When you're looking at someone's LinkedIn profile, one of the things you could do is click the More icon and save the profile as a PDF. I did this with Tim Brock's profile. (laughs) When I did it to my own, it generated a PDF of five pages. And I've I've had a decent career, did a lot of stuff that, I don't know, it just looks like I've done a lot, five pages worth. Tim's, in contrast, is 13 pages. Reminds me of being in the university where you look at a professor's CV, curriculum vita, and it's 50 55, 60 pages long. To me, 13 pages on LinkedIn on a for a profile, that's a long career. But with Tim, it's a career of stewardship. Tim is continuously giving back and sharing with people within the profession. He really is a steward of the profession of performance improvement. In the Air Force, he was a instructor. He did simulation training instruction. But he's served also on multiple faculty positions, and in his current role for the ROI Institute, he does do some workshops. He's even on the faculty, get this, of the United Nations System Staff College at, I'm going to mess up the name, Turin, Italy, where he does, teaches ROI methodology. There's two things I really love about Tim. One is he has a great sense of humor, which really comes out in a positive way. But when he gets serious about talking about instructional design, performance improvement, leadership, or ROI, you can see the passion and his desire to want to share and help others understand these important concepts that he's learned and benefited from his own career. Like most guests on the show, he's a giver. Part one, what every wing commander should strive to achieve. If you listen to some of the previous episodes, you probably would have heard me talk about how leadership is radically changing. It's not the command and control. It's not how to get other people to accomplish stuff, but it's much more about helping other people build character. Before many of us even started thinking about leadership in this new way, Tim had figured it out while growing up. Well, let me let Tim explain it. When you look at my life growing up, I'm amazed that I'm having this conversation with you on this topic of leadership because I was just an average kid, you know, never part of uh, those who were considered leaders in any of my circle of friends or classmates. I was, I was a B student on average, except in the math and science classes where I didn't, um, well, let's say excel. Uh, but I took those courses because I was told they were required to prepare you to go to college. Everybody said you had to go to college. But in my junior year, my guidance counselor told me that my grades were not good enough to get in college, let alone get a college scholarship. And, and my parents both worked and they still, they didn't have the beans to pay for me to go to college. I mean, we lived in a trailer court because they couldn't afford to buy a home. So 
I was uncertain what I would do after graduation. And my, my dad told me that there was no future in the town that we lived in and that I should join the military. And this was during the Vietnam War. Gotcha. Now, this is, when, this is when my first leadership epiphany occurred. We were studying the history of Pennsylvania in one of my courses where I grew up. And um, I read a quote about leadership that was attributed to William Penn, who was the founder of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And that, that quote is stuck with me even to today. And what William Penn said was that no man is fit to command another that cannot, cannot command himself. And for some reason, that just resonated with me. You know, that, that's when I decided that, you know, I had to start developing more self-discipline and confidence in myself to have a purpose in life rather than just drifting through it and only doing what others told me to do. And since the military seemed like my only option, I enlisted in the Air Force during my senior year of high school and flew to basic training in July of 1971. Now, so that's where you started to really take charge of your life and making decisions for yourself? Exactly right. And you would think joining the military in the middle of a war is not really an ideal place to take control of your life and find purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah. The military environment is one of those places where they say, they're going to tell you what to do, exactly what I was trying to get out of. It was, it was during basic training that I actually had my first leadership opportunity to apply this William Penn quote, because somehow I was selected by our drill sergeant to be his flight commander. Now, that means that I was put in charge of 30 other basic trainees assigned to this flight who lived in the same World War II dormitory or barracks. I was only 17. My wow. goal my goal was to fly under the radar and just graduate. You know what I mean? I mean, people were yelling at you all the time. Nothing you did was right. And I'm thinking, keep your head down. Don't volunteer for anything and just get out of there. And look where that got you. And look where that got you. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so so I, I didn't know what to do. So somehow, unconsciously, I think, I began to apply this, this William Penn quote because I decided that what I would do is I would have to lead by example to be the best flight member I could be so that I could maintain the trust of our, our drill sergeant because I didn't want to get fired. And I wanted to gain the respect of my flight members because who is this kid? But one of the first things I had to do was I had to select my four squad leaders who would be in charge of the four squads that we had within the, uh, the flight. Okay. So I selected them and I told them that I trusted them to make sure that their squads didn't earn any demerits during inspections and drill practices. I said, so, so what I did was I delegated to them and put the responsibility for results on their shoulders. You know, I, I, I got to step in and say this. You did something different. You believed in them at the get-go, at the mm -hmm. very beginning, and went from that mm -hmm. assumption that you believe that they can do this. Right. See, they had the same situation because they were going to try to fly under the radar too. So once they stepped up, once I selected them, they realized that they wanted to keep their jobs too because you have a little bit, you have perks, you know, in those positions that they didn't want to give up. Like you're the last ones to be selected to go do KP, you uh -huh. know, kitchen patrol, you know, that type of stuff. They were motivated to try to keep those positions. So the other thing, so the other thing that I did was 
I also made sure that I talked to every one of our flight members during the day because what I wanted to do was to develop a personal relationship with each of them and learn what I could be doing better. Because if anybody's going to tell me where I'm screwing up, it's going to be one of them. So I'd rather they do it to my face to tell me than hear about it through the grapevine. Mm. So I focused in on, okay, trusting people, selecting people to get the job done. You know, so we, we had a job, a mission to accomplish, to, to graduate. I also wanted to make sure that I developed those relationships with people. So I was balancing the task and the people elements of, you know, you take a look at the, the Ohio State study on, you know, the balance between um, task and people. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what I was doing. I was just managing those two elements. Now, as a result of that, our drill sergeant told us at graduation that we were the best flights that he ever had, which <laughs> surprised me because I was just making it up as I was going along. But where did I put my emphasis on? I put my emphasis on trusting people and developing relationships with people in the organization. That was kind of the beginning of my leadership journey, starting as an airman basic and retiring as a, a field grade officer over 20 years later, where my last assignment was training Air Force officer candidates how to lead in the 21st century. This was in the 1990s. Yeah, and that's years before the popular notion of what leadership has become became popular. I mean, exactly. that's, that's impressive that you were doing this back in the 90s. You know, and what's it's even more amazing is a lot of these former officer candidates of mine are now retiring from the Air Force as field-grade officers. You know, they put in their 20-year careers. I mean, making me feel old. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I go, why? You can't do that to me. As I thought about it, I also want to give William Penn credit for my going from not being college material to having earned a PhD. And you're really good at statistics too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I can do math now. That's right. I even teach it. <laughs> so the thing is, this quote has really affected my leadership thinking even to today. It's always where I go back to and where I start from. I can't lead somebody else until I first lead myself. Part two, change your environment to enable others to be at their best. The way to make the impossible possible or the ordinary extraordinary is to involve lots of people. You can't do it by yourself. The genius of a group is much better than the genius of one person. Well, that's easy to say. The real question is, how do you tap into the genius of a group? This story that Tim shares illustrates this, and it's probably one of the best leadership stories I've heard in a long time. Again, here's Tim. After I retired from the Air Force, I decided to retire uh, when I was recruited to be a high school principal of a growing private school. You know, I was at the university, I was teaching these officer candidates how to become officers in the Air Force, you know, commissioning them in the Air Force. I decided that, you know, it was about time for me to hang up the shingle out there and to move on in my life. So this opportunity came along and the current school principal would take the elementary school and I would take the high school. And this looked like a great simple leadership position to ease into and that I could really enjoy. But just before my retirement date and starting this position, the school had a serious conflict between the school principal 
and the school board. And as a result, the principal was fired and she took all of the school support staff, 64% of the faculty, and over 50% of the student body with her to start another school. And that included the entire curriculum that the school had and the identity of the school. I was asked when I came in to create a new school to open in three months. I'd never run a school before. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what to do any more than I had an idea of how to be a flight commander in basic training. Even worse, the remaining faculty was shell-shocked and hurting. They felt betrayed. And the parents of those who remained were also dismayed. And they were demanding answers and assurances that would convince them not to look for another school over the summer. After all, you know, they were paying tuition out of their own pockets to put their kids in a private school. And some of these parents were struggling single moms. They were wanting to get something better for their kids. And the students were also hurting and confused because so many of their classmates were not returning to school. So here I am. I'm teaching leadership to future officer candidates out there, right? Yep. And I was stepping in to lead a school that had no identity, no curriculum, no school staff, no budget or tuition income plan, a partial faculty, and a lot of hurting and angry people. In addition, to make matters worse, the school lost its accreditation, and no one wanted to send their children to a school that was not accredited. But on the bright side, I did have a nice office with a window. Oh, <laughs> there you go. The situation is setting you up so well to either lead or to sink or, or, yeah. or jump, jump the ship, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this was a sink or swim type of situation. And so many lives were at stake here. Well, what you do? Well, I realized that I had two leadership challenges that was going to require a lot of self-discipline and sacrifice on my part. And it kind of went back to what I talked about with the Ohio State uh, grid with differentiating between the balance between the task and people. The hard task was creating the school from scratch. And the other part was to address the pain of the school board, staff, parents, and students to win their commitment to the school that we only had a summer to create. Mm. Now, I, I, could, I couldn't march in there like Patton and take command of the situation and bark out orders. I didn't know what orders to bark out. And I realized that I had to take command of my thinking and approach using what we call adaptive leadership. In the military context, what we mean is we place young men and women in high-stress, high-consequence environments where they must win the hearts of the local population while simultaneously finding and killing the bad people who are trying to kill them. You know, the military gotcha. warriors to today, they just can't go in and, you know, and fire bullets and blow things up anymore. You got to win over the local population too. I had to go in and I had to win some hearts of the people, the hurting people there to get on board to move forward, and I had to kill the barriers to opening the school um, in three months. So the most challenging problem that would take the most time to create the school was you know, getting a curriculum together for all 12 grades. 
I didn't know what to teach first, second, <laughs> third, or anything like that. So what I decided to do is, you know, I had to get people involved. We had to keep and attract parents to retain the faculty and recruit new faculty, and they all come in based upon the curriculum. So I turned to the remaining faculty, and I empowered them to create the curriculum they always wanted to have. I told them, you know this best, I don't. So I want you to create a curriculum that you, that you would have loved to have had from the very beginning. And I, I also told them, I says, keep in mind that we're dealing with elementary grade levels and we're dealing with middle school and high school levels. So I, I, I put them together in teams, okay? And I said, I want you to create this and, and I, I, I put team leaders in charge to resemble like squads, like I did squad leaders, to control what they would teach in the classrooms. And I also told them I expected them to collaborate with the other teams to create a seamless continuity in the curriculum from year to year. And I also created a new director of curriculum position who was in charge of the entire effort, like a flight commander. And this was a position that she always wanted to have because she had a master's degree in that area. And we also invited the parents to come in and be a part of because I said, hey, this is the curriculum that your kids are have. What do you want to see your kids have in the curriculum? So the teachers and the parents just responded to this like you wouldn't believe. They had never been empowered like this before. And they were really excited at this level of trust that I showed them to allow them to take control of their future. Yeah, I'm hearing three important things. You've opened up the opportunity for creativity. You instilled the opportunity for collaboration. And you opened it up to accountability at multiple levels. Yep, very much so. And, and what I did was I supported them. I told them my job was to support them on what they were trying to do. Now, while I had them moving forward on the curriculum, I had to, to turn my attention to create a comprehensive strategic business plan and a budget to define a salary scale for the teachers and staff. I had to figure out how am I going to pay them when the school opens again. So this also had to include an operations budget for the school and a tuition plan to generate the necessary income that was competitive and that the remaining parents could afford. Last thing I wanted to do was to come up with a new tuition and those parents that were loyal to the school said, I can't afford to go there anymore. Yeah. And, and the old school took all the records on this with them. So I had to do research to find anything I could to help me to do this. And I also connected with different accrediting agencies looking for help. All without Google. Without Google. This is way before the internet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so once I had this figured out, I could now start to hire new teachers and we could open enrollment for returning and new students. I'm sure you know that news of a situation like this becomes very well known. And I had to work with my team and volunteer parents to create a marketing plan to convince more parents to enroll their children at our school and attract new ones. And also quality teachers, because they yeah. all thought the school was folded. It was gone. So I said I had to create a purpose for the school that differentiated it from other private schools. So I went back to my Air Force training, and the big thing in the Air Force back in those days was quality. So what I did 
was I created a vision statement that mm. defined who we are, what we did, and why we did it. And I repeated it every, everywhere I went in everything I wrote. And I had every staff member and teacher memorize it to repeat it to everyone that they met. It was kind of like an elevator speech. Yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to rally everybody around this vision to get us on a single vision together that we all could, could say that this is why we exist. This is our purpose. This is our direction. That's how you get your buy-in. <laughs> right, right. Because they, they were asking, okay, I'm coming in as the new principles and leader. Where are you leading us? Yeah. Where are we going? Why should we stick around? The other thing I had to do was I, I heavily invested in the professional development of my teachers through in-service programs and closing the school so that everyone, all my teachers could attend two teacher, teacher conferences. That, and one of them that we hosted, usually they only did one a year. I did one each semester. I, I, I plan to do one each semester because I told my teachers, I says, I'm investing in you. I said, people come to the school not because of what I do. It's because of what you do in the classroom. And my job is to do everything that I can to make you the best teacher possible. So I emphasized the quality of our faculty was the key to achieving this vision. And I repeatedly told the teachers and parents that this is what was going on. The focus was on what was happening in the classroom. And my role was to remove any barriers that prevented them from being the best teachers they could be. They were shocked. They told me that they have never been treated with such support and respect before. Anytime there was a problem, it was the teacher's fault. Anytime a parent came in to complain, it was the teacher's fault. What happened was I had a extremely loyal staff that was dedicated to a singular vision that I established, and they trusted me. And I had a, a relationship with every single one of the teachers that was about supporting them and what they had to do. And when the first day of school began, we were ready. And we had registered enough students to meet our budget. That is fantastic. I'm going to guess it flourished. Here's what happened. I was the principal there for two years. I had to learn how to be a private school principal during this time. And I spent a lot of time disciplining myself, like William Penn said, to adapt myself to the different environment with civilians who did not take my recommendations as orders. Okay. So I had to command myself first. But our reputation as a quality school grew during the year, and we achieved a 95% retention, student retention rate at the end of that year. Like I said, my faculty was incredibly loyal to me because I was first loyal to them. I met with my team leaders, my, my squad leaders, every morning for them to pass on the latest information to their teams during their morning meetings. I wanted to have a steady flow of information going back and forth. They would inform me what was going on, what I could do to help them, and I informed them what was going on so they could report back to the teachers so nobody was in the dark. We had great monthly and service training sessions that they controlled. I kept parents informed about our achievements with a monthly newsletter, and our daily operations land, ran like clockwork, where I let people do their jobs and help them solve problems while I worked behind the scenes trying to earn our accreditation. And we were able to earn our first accreditation 
by the end of the first year, which wow. everybody thought that's, that's some... you, you can't, yeah, you can't do that. And the, the amazing thing was, is the accreditation report from the accreditation team that visited us, they described in writing, okay, they described me as a gifted leader and committed me for excellent leadership and vision and making major improvements in all areas. And they were amazed that every single teacher they talked to knew our school vision when they were asked. When they gave me credit for the school's accomplishments in that one short year, I always said that it was a team effort. I just cleared the path so others could create the school that they wanted. And I'm talking about parents, and I'm talking about teachers, I'm talking about the school board, because they're the ones who were sending their kids there. And it had to be something that they wanted to invest their money in. So we were flying high, and we were soaring even higher at the, at the end of that first year. What I'm hearing is you changed the environment so that people could be at their best, both the teachers, the students, the parents, mm -hmm. and everyone involved in, the, in management. Exactly. Part of me wishes that the story ended here. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Tim reveals another leadership lesson that he learned, and I think we all can benefit from it. Here's Tim. During the second year, I strayed from spending as much time with my faculty and parents to know what was happening by getting stuck behind my desk and being in meetings. See, our focus was now on growing the school while working with certain school board members and neglecting keeping my finger on the pulse of what was happening in the classroom in the hallways. I should have remembered a story that one of my former commanders told me uh, when I was in the Air Force. I, it, was, it was late at night, like 11 o'clock at night, and I'm walking from my office to my car, and I'm walking by our uh, command headquarters. And I see the light on in our, our squadron commander's office. So I decided just to walk on in, and I walk in, I says, I says, Colonel, what are you still doing here? And he looks at me, he says, hey, he says, hey, Hey, Brocco, he called me Brocco. He says, hey, Captain Brocco, he says, this is when I get my work done. During the day, I am out and I am with my people, with the staff, with the troops, interacting with people. He says, at night, when everybody's at home is when I come to the office and I get my administrative work done. Well, that's what I should have been doing more of because I kind of was neglecting what was happening, like I said, in the hallways and the classrooms. Now, if I had gone out and I've been walking around and communicating with people, I would have learned that two people who had remained from the old school and were on my staff somehow decided that they could do a better job running the school. And they had their own vision for the school. And this caused division. And of course, you know, the word division is yeah. division. That's two visions. So they began a false rumor campaign that undermined me that eventually resulted in their dismissal from the school after the damage was done. And I later learned that they did the same thing at the old school that contributed to that sad outcome, and the same chain reaction of re re emotional responses were now happening. And I realized at that point in time that my departure probably was not far behind due to the damage they had done to my reputation and my ability to move the school forward. What they had done is they had destroyed trust. 
Part 3, Relationships, Reputation of Competence, and Trustworthiness. There's a lot we can do to be more effective at leadership. In Part 3, Tim offers a way for us to continue to evolve. My advice to listeners out there is I believe leadership is, is about relationships and reputations that come through experience. It's through relationships that we achieve results. And it's through reputations that we establish relationships. And a reputation of competence and trustworthiness is critical. One of my favorite leadership books out there, uh, I don't know if you've seen this or not, it's called The Essence of Leadership. Okay. And the auth authors argue that there are four elements of leadership, motives and traits, competence, vision, and the capacity to implement that vision. And the way I see it, the first two come from commanding yourself. And the second two position you to command others. And all four come with experience. So I guess I would say my final thought is to remember the words of William Penn. Focus on your character and competence so that you can be yourself as you develop and grow your relationship with others. Don't get trapped in a manager role when you should be leading. Leadership begins within because you cannot lead others if you do not first lead yourself to become a better person with a worthwhile vision. The words of William Penn. The words of William Penn. That's right. My guest, Tim Brock, thank you for spending time with us and thank you for your service to the country. To learn more about the show, go to the show notes for links. Finally, thank you for listening. Until next time, lead on.